Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with behavior. Join certified dog trainers as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. Today's episode includes myself, Marissa Martino, owner of Pause and Reward Dog Training in Boulder, Colorado. And today I am joined by the amazing Dr. Chris Pockle, board certified veterinary behaviorist. Welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you today. Uh, thank you so much for having me on, Marissa. I'm uh, honored to be here and I'm really looking forward to the conversation today. Yes, me too. So today we are going to be talking about Dr. Pockle's process when it comes to veterinary behavior, not only with his clients and their canine companions, but also with their veterinarians. Sometimes it truly takes a village. So before we get started, would you mind telling our listeners a bit about yourself and explaining what a vet behaviorist actually is? Absolutely. Uh, I think that there's there's a couple of ways to think about that sort of certification. And for me, it always makes sense to start at the beginning, uh, which is I was a veterinarian first and foremost. That is sort of my foundation. And 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 while that sort of seems obvious when you say I'm a veterinary <laughs> behaviorist, sometimes I think that gets missed a little bit. Like, oh, you're actually a vet too. Okay, that's mm-hmm. cool. Uh, and so the, the behaviorist piece kind of takes over. Uh, what I think is actually really relevant uh, in addition to that is sort of having that medical knowledge first and foremost is also the way in which veterinarians or medical professionals are trained to think. And there is a process where uh, we are often looking at different sort of clusters of behaviors or different observations or different lab test values. And we're kind of clustering and moving things together and figuring out kind of what fits and what doesn't. And, and there's a process that you spend years developing and a way of thinking about how to navigate individual cases, whether they're medical or behavioral. So that, that is, is fundamental to, to some of the conversations that we get into when we're, we're then perhaps sharing cases between veterinary behaviorists, veterinarians, or trainers or behavior consultants. And we can come back to that a little bit later if we get the opportunity. But the piece that I bring that up, because then we, we start from that foundation of being a veterinarian, and then we layer on the behavior piece. Mm-hmm. And for me, my journey through that meant I, I practiced as a, a, a general practitioner for a couple of years in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, uh, and then decided to go back into residency training, which ended up taking about four years or so. Uh, there were a couple little twists and turns within that journey for me as mm-hmm. well. But and about four years of, of additional training with case mentorship, uh, direct observation, graduate school study, uh, doing primary research, publication, and eventually sitting uh, a two-day exam. And so that process, you know, I remember back to that, that even, even after sort of being immersed in this field for, you know, four years, by the time we were ready to sit the exam, I actually had taken 12 weeks off and literally studied for 12 to 14 hours a day wow. on top of the, in order to be able to stand a, sh- a shot of passing. Wow. So it's, it's information about, um, gosh, you know, so many different patterns in so many different species and the veterinary behavior curriculum and education process includes not only the dogs and cats that we, that we typically think about, but horses and birds and multiple production animal species and understanding what are the housing requirements of pigs, for example, mm-hmm. and how can we meet basic needs and how do we pull uh, you know, welfare concerns and five freedoms of, of, of basic rights of animal behavior and things of that nature. How do we pull that in on all of these different levels and understanding uh, you know, African hoofstock and mm-hmm. you know, what all of that stuff is on the exam in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. So the diversity of experience that you go through to get to the point of then saying, and now I can call myself a board-certified veterinary behaviorist is so incredibly diverse. And I think sometimes that that isn't fully, I don't want to say recognized because it's not a badge of honor necessarily, but I, I don't think that, that, that everything that goes into that is always known mm-hmm. to really be able to, to sort of understand what's behind that particular title. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you for explaining that. I didn't realize it went so in depth into so many different types of species. Like that's, that's pretty amazing. Why do you think that is like, what, what, what is the purpose behind that? So people are prepared to go into a variety of different areas. There, I think there's two things. Uh, one is, so yes, that, that fundamental 
sort of certification mm-hmm. allows you to practice in zoo medicine, for example, and understand those species, or go into clinical practice with companion animals, or you know, advise industry on you know the the, the welfare practices for again production animal, for example. Um, so I think that part of it is is sort of preparedness. Yeah. I also think that there's a tremendous value in again, as you're sort of bringing that perspective in and getting that diversity of experiences to be able to say, gosh, you know, the dogs that I work with would never do these particular things, but other species would. Mm-hmm. So it creates, a, at least for me, creates a level of curiosity and a level of awareness of all of these different patterns that may be sort of outside that more narrow scope Mm-hmm. of what is more sort of in my wheelhouse or in my day-to-day practice, yeah. if you will. So I think there's so many benefits that come along with that diversity. Yeah. And when you're dealing with complex behavior cases, curiosity, I think, is one of the one of the first tools that you need in your toolbox, right? Because if you don't ask questions and get curious and get creative, you might hit a dead end, right? And then just sort of get stuck there. So what an amazing Absolutely. skill. Yeah, you know, and I think one of the things that also for me comes along with that is having the, oh gosh, maybe humility mm-hmm. to be able to say there are animals out there that I'm just barely scratching the surface on. Absolutely. Yeah. Which, you know, by the time we get ready to take that exam, like it's not possible to know everything. It's just not. Yeah. And you're either going to freak out and implode on that, <laughs> <laughs> which you know, truth be told, had there are a few of those moments in there too, or you, you find a way through and you're like, yeah, at this point, I know what I know. I know I'll what I know. i share that information to the best of my knowledge. Mm-hmm. And when things look confusing to me and, I, and I'm looking at, you know, what would the white-handed gibbon do? And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. I, <laughs> I, I don't know what they would do, nor would I recognize one if it hit me across the face. Yeah. So, you know, and then you have to basically say, you know what? I don't know that information. Yeah. I can make an educated guess, but I'm, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. Super so liberating. You, like when you lean into that, even though it's uncomfortable, it can be very liberating. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. And, and getting comfortable enough saying, gosh, that is beyond, beyond the level of my knowledge. Uh-huh but I bet someone else knows more than I do. Totally. And who, who might that be, right? Yeah, I love it. Thank you for explaining that. Um, so we're going to dive into our questions today. So the first one is, what sorts of behavior concerns do you typically see as a vet behaviorist? Uh, great question. Uh, you know, I would say, if, you know, if I think about the overall scope of what comes in through the practice, you know, we're, we're definitely seeing fear and anxiety issues uh, probably at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. And then how those manifest might be in aggression patterns. It might be in social withdrawal or patterns that resemble almost more of a depression-like state. Um, we might also see other more panic-type behaviors, which may be coming from noise phobias or, uh, or other, you know, again, fear-based circumstances. Uh, we certainly see a lot of patients with, uh, say, separation anxiety or other relationship-type pattern problems. Uh, We also see animals with compulsive disorder. And, you know, gosh, then we also see a fair number of uh, of animals that are kind of just really struggling with adolescence in some way, shape or form in terms of impulsivity or quote unquote reactivity Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, really struggling to, 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 to navigate the, the circumstances that their life requires of them. Yeah. And, you know, which is kind of a different way to think about it in some ways, but it's, it's true, right? We're mm-hmm. asking them to navigate and sometimes their skill set just doesn't allow that to happen. Totally. And so, so we, we see all of those, uh, all of those details on, you know, to varying degrees. And that's part of the, the, the fun and part of the challenge is to figure out, you know, as an example, and without geeking out on this too hard, uh, I just did a, a diagnostic assessment yesterday for a dog that was coming in for primary noise phobia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the owner, actually an incredible skilled owner who's done an amazing job already of understanding her dog and has been working through some really high level workshops and doing some really phenomenal classical conditioning exercises. So amazing. And is spinning her wheels because the dog is not getting better. And so she comes in thinking, what, what am I doing? Yeah. And the fascinating thing is when we started to peel back the layers on this particular dog, 
the obvious diagnosis is noise phobia because those are the triggers that the dog is often responding to. But when we looked at the pattern of responding, uh-huh. it's less about the noises. In fact, this is a dog who might hear the same noise in one context and react profoundly and hear the same noise in another context and not react at all. Uh-huh. And there's certain seasonal patterns for this dog that, you know, let's say when the snow plows come out for the first time in the fall or in the winter, it sends the dog into a panic. And then as exposure increases through the winter, that reaction gets less and less and less. Similarly, first storm of the year is a major problem, but then with repeated mm-hmm. exposure, essentially seeing a version of habituation mm-hmm. on, a, on a, a more of a longer term basis. And what we really came to in terms of the conclusion on this particular dog is that it's actually not the noise that's the primary panic trigger. It's whether or not that noise is occurring in a context or a pattern that is predictable and -hmm. explainable to the animal. So what we're actually treating is a primary underlying generalized anxiety condition. Mm -hmm. And this animal's need for predictability and understanding and probably some degree of control Mm -hmm. over what's happening around it. And when we address the anxiety piece, I fully predict that the noise triggers are not going to be as concerning. Yeah. But it's, it's sort of understanding that all of those different patterns exist, you know, paralleling what we see in people to a, to a, to a different degree in terms of how that might be expressed or manifested by the animal and, and understanding that, you know, gosh, what sometimes seems to be the obvious way forward isn't. Mm-hmm. And that's back to that curiosity and humility yeah. that we've been chatting about and, and, and really just sitting with it until I think, wait a minute, what is this pattern? So I know it's a really long-winded answer to what sort of patterns we see in the clinic, but it's, it's, it's that sort of stuff that really gets me fired up. Yeah, that's so awesome. Yeah, it's, it's I amazing. It. It was, it was a great day yesterday. I, I, also, I, I, I could see it on your, I could see it on your face. Um, I also want to, what, what real, real quick, um, sidebar, um, what are you doing in terms of treatment for that dog? Cause I'm sure some folks that are listening are probably like, Ooh, how's he going to treat the anxiety? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So we, we came up with a triage plan. Um, okay. you know, and this is, this is, uh, couple of things. We're going to be making a medication adjustment with a okay. you know, greater understanding of what we think is going on and what was perhaps not being targeted by the current med plan. Okay. So we're making a medication adjustment to, to really try to capture that kind of missing piece based on this mm-hmm. new understanding. Uh, the owner is already doing a phenomenal job of minimizing exposure okay. to, those, to those triggers as best she can. Yeah. So there wasn't a lot of room for a lot of opportunity for growth in that particular area. But one thing that, that we were able to do, even on kind of a management bridging into behavior mod side of things, is rather than, let's say, leaning on operant tasks to kind of keep this animal busy or to help that animal recover, mm-hmm. which is helpful. And there's a time and a place where that's absolutely what the animal needs. So I'm not trying to, to downplay or disregard that, that sometimes that is the right thing to do. What I find for my patients like this is that as long as they're leaning on crutches to get them through, they're not actually developing coping skills. Mm -hmm. And so we sometimes feel like we're just going through the same dance over and over again. And so there's a, there's a, 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 what would I call it? A technique that we use sometimes in the practice in cases like this, that I recall rewarding the recovery. And we're essentially minimizing the exposure to not keep that animal in an over threshold situation but allowing them an opportunity to recover on their own if we think they're capable of it. Mm -hmm. And so we're watching for any signs of Mm self-calming, shake off, Mm -hmm. stretch, uh, engaging in social interaction appropriately, not sort of needy, clingy, attention-seeking, but appropriate social interaction, uh, perhaps starting to take food, anything that suggests a recovery. Mm -hmm. And then we essentially mark and reward that, not necessarily with a clicker, but but calling attention to that and essentially strengthening the animal's ability to recover physically and physiologically and emotionally by reinforcing those those recovery patterns. That's awesome. It's something we've just had so much fun with in the practice. So we're we're bridging from that as a way Mm -hmm. to start kind of navigating those situations as they happen because we can't avoid everything. 
And then we're also focusing on, for this particular dog, two additional things. Uh, this is an owner who already has a, a pretty significant degree of familiarity with mat work and basically a conditioned relaxation response, but has not really pushed that forward, meaning they, they practice it as a way to maybe, let's say, settle before a meal. Mm -hmm. but not really as developing an overall skill set around that. And so one of the ways that we may be able to get some particular dog is if we're, if we're leveraging that relaxed down construct with or without the mat, in this case, we're not using the mat because we want it to generalize a little bit more fluently to wherever we happen to be versus having it tied into that, that particular mat. Uh, in this case, we are going to be working that. And then once the dog sort of really understands the concept and is able to remain soft relaxed and attentive to minor distractions and minor stimulation that's happening around it, then we'll start folding in some of this animal's particular triggers mm -hmm. while essentially asking the dog or rewarding the dog to remain calm mm -hmm. in the face of those distractions. Um, not requiring calm, the dog is free to get up and move around whenever it wants to, but if it's able to remain in that calm, attentive, focused kind of prefrontal cortex state versus flipping into that limbic system response, mm -hmm. then we'll be able to strengthen that response through, through targeted reinforcement. So that's part of what we're doing. We're also going to be exploring the opportunity of, of teaching that dog different ways of making noise, knowing that noises are one of the triggers for this particular dog and starting to teach this dog different ways of doing that. And whether that is, uh, interacting with different substrates or textures mm -hmm. um, in a way that sort of, again, gives that animal a bit of control over the creation of noise. Uh, in other cases, we may be uh, working them with objects that will end up toppling over, initially starting with, with things that are soft uh, and, and sort of non-startling, but working up to ways where we have to actually get this dog sort of seeking out ways to create random noises within their environment to give them a sense of control. Uh, potentially even, we, I've never done this before, truthfully, but this came up in conversation yesterday. Can we actually kind of recreate some of those, let's say, um, woodpecker drilling on metal noises, for mm -hmm. example, if there's an app that'll do that, why not ask the dog to target something on an iPad screen and give them the opportunity to create their own noises for reinforcement? Oh my gosh. At Right? This is so awesome. What an amazing idea to give the dog control over making noises and to shift the association around noises. This is, yes. this is brilliant. It was amazing. And we you're had... bringing technology in. This is a little right? bit, this is, this is a little bit 2020. <laughs> you ask me. It was so much fun. And, you know, and the things that are possible within this particular case, because this is an owner who has already done much of the groundwork. Yes. And we were then able to say, well, that didn't work when you yeah. focused specifically on the noise. So what is this? Back to that curiosity piece. Uh -huh. So if it's not a primary noise phobia issue, you know, maybe it is, and the implementation was actually maybe not perfect. So maybe we can clean that up a little bit if that's the case. But there was enough other little details that made me thinking, I don't think this is what we're actually treating. I think the diagnosis is a little bit off point. So mm -hmm. let's, let's pull this back in. And it is, it's that, that, that multi-pronged approach of saying, how can I teach this animal the coping skill that it yeah. needs? You know, as one of my therapist colleagues often talks about sort of the edge work of, of mm -hmm. you know, not just keeping that animal comfortable all the time because that doesn't allow them to grow or expand mm -hmm. or learn. Yeah. And yet we can't necessarily learn terribly effectively if we're over threshold oh the entire threshold. time. So how do we start from kind of that green, neutral, soft place and get that bit of exposure mm -hmm. right on the edge and then shape through reinforcement, yeah. whether that is, you know, classical conditioning or more operant based conditioning, teach that animal how to, to perform or do or act or shift how that animal is feeling. Yeah. But it's, it sort of takes all of those concepts in. So we're sort of focusing on the teaching, management, and avoidance until the learning has taken place and facilitating that progress through medication if that's appropriate or necessary under the circumstances. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious to know all of those things that you just mentioned in terms of a treatment plan. Did you 
give that client all of those things to do or support them through that process because of the client's commitment and where they've been before. And I mean, you, you describe this person as very committed, uh, willing to learn, has attended workshops. Like this isn't her first rodeo. Right. And so did you, um, it sounds like you have a lot of trust in her female, right? Correct. That she will be able to embody all of this and take this on. Is that, is that true? It is. Okay. And, and yet she was also very honest and upfront saying, I love the theory of behavior change. I don't love training. Yeah. I don't love doing it. But the cool thing about it, when we were looking at her particular skill set, mm-hmm. is that she's already done at least one, if not multiple trick dog titles for this dog. And so we're so focusing awesome. on like, look, if we make the training fun, yeah, are we all more motivated to do it yeah. versus feeling like we're slogging through this desensitization program yeah. and it's this scripted thing that we're basically just checking off boxes on a worksheet versus can we actually do this? And so making the, the active training fun mm-hmm. and then the rest of it is mostly integrated. It's, you know, how can we kind of change our, our philosophy around how we're best supporting this dog? Mm-hmm. So when those moments happen, we can actually start to shift more in the direction of coping skills and teaching this animal a, a more appropriate response without feeling like it's something that we have to add to our day or remember yes. to do. Yes. Uh, and so it, whenever I'm able to create a plan that does capture that, I'm able to layer more details in because it's more about knowing what to do when it happens Versus saying, and spend 15 minutes, 30 Mm -hmm. minutes, 45 minutes, you know, for those people who are already busy and maybe not that motivated to do that, or maybe it's even an animal that just can't function in that way. And so then for those cases, we would really modify the plan. Um, You know, it was, it was interesting yesterday. We had two cases that come to mind that one, which was obviously for many reasons, much, uh, let's say higher level in Mm -hmm. terms of our, our ability to assess and, and apply treatment. And another one, which is is more of a characteristic, um, not to say that every adolescent shepherd shows this pattern of reactivity, but it's a pattern <laughs> that we see very, very frequently in the practice. And, and with a client who is very, very much new to the game on this, mm-hmm. so does not have great handling skills, they're yep. utilizing tools, n- not even to the best of their ability. Um, we've got a lot of learning to do. And so that client got a very, very different... different plan. And in fact, we're going to be moving that dog rather than sort of stretching this out and trying to bring the client up to speed. We're going to be taking that case more from a day training model. So Mm -hmm. we're going to, one of my trainers is going to be working with that dog, you know, with or without the family present to be able to build and layer in those skill sets for the dog. And then as the, the, the owner is sort of able to take on those skills, then we'll bring them up to speed. So it's a very, very different model and mm-hmm. a different way through the treatment process based on their, not only the patterns of the learner, in this case, the dog, but also the patterns of the learner as the client and yeah. the, the owner and the caregiver and the one who's responsible for implementation. I would love to do a whole episode on day training because I have so many questions about that. Like, <laughs> right? Because so, I've personally amazing. had some pretty challenging day training clients where they just expect the dog to be a robot, right? And so then I have steered clear from it. Um, and so I'd love to, to talk to folks about successful day training models and what, and what that looks like and how you set the owner up for success and, and yes. sort of shift their expectations because and that's they, really what it comes down to. Sorry, totally. sorry to jump in there, but that's, that's what I found. And when we first started doing that at the animal behavior clinic, uh, yeah, I had some rocky cases yeah. where I yeah. had not set the owner up for, for expectations. Mm-hmm. And then here we are, on our side, mm-hmm. celebrating the success and the totally, progress the animal totally. was making. And the owner was, in, in one case at least, very upset mm-hmm. that you know, they had a different idea of where we were headed. Yeah. And that was on me. I, mm-hmm. I, when, I, when I really paused and then looked back, I thought, wow, I, I did not I set you up it. for this. Yeah. You know, and I'm not just trying to be self-critical, like, oh, it must have been my fault. Oh, no, no. I found the place in, in my communication where I should, I don't like that word, uh-huh. but where there was an opportunity for me to have charted the course of treatment and yeah. to explain to the client, this is the way this is likely to work. So mm-hmm. I, I completely understand what you're saying. Yeah. 
It's tricky, but I think that, that that's great that you have a variety of options for a variety of different learners because you're going to see people and dogs at, at different stages. So I think that that's great. Exactly. Yeah. And really figuring out sort of when and how to apply those and when and how mm -hmm. to use the resources that are available to us, whether it's technology, whether it's training support, whether mm -hmm. it's phone communication, yeah. you know, what's, what's going to be the best combination for this particular set of learners. Yeah. I, um, thank you so much for going on that sidebar because I'm sure I'm, I, I'm hoping that I, I satiated some listeners when they were like, Oh, I want to hear what he's doing and what Absolutely. you're doing is so cool. Fun. So I'm happy I asked. Yeah. This and yesterday was an amazing day in the practice and it was, it was fun. I have, I have a resident with me in the practice. Now she started with me last fall and we're, we're gradually sort of building, building up her skill set as well. She's an amazing clinician and, and is really, um, it's going to be phenomenal. But she was with me yesterday for both of those cases. And so it created those opportunities uh -huh. for me to really run with it where my brain was and also to help someone else who's not yet at a point where they can see those patterns as readily. Yeah. To understand kind of why individual elements from that dog's history and observation and what we saw within the, even within the appointment, how those different observations could be utilized to really not only understand the patterns that were there in front of us, but to guide the process of treatment choices mm -hmm. versus saying, oh, this is a dog with noise phobia, therefore, mm -hmm. you know, this is a dog with separation anxiety, therefore, it's like, no, that's a great starting point. It's a yeah. jumping off point, but it doesn't allow me to necessarily know exactly how that animal is going to progress. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. So that was fun. Yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. So do you feel as though you are starting to see more and more dogs needing either a veterinary behaviorist or drug therapy support in their behavior modification plan? Because this is something that um we have a wonderful group of trainers here in the Colorado area where we have uh, a joint Facebook account and and we rattle cases off to one another. Like there's a, a, a lot of really collaborative, supportive efforts here in Colorado. And I'm really grateful for that. And we're noticing this more and more. I have a, I have a, a, a colleague that's always like, put him on meds. <laughs> like, I mean, she's joking, <laughs> but, but you know, we're seeing these more significant, complex cases and your take on that and what's coming through your, your practice. Yeah, I, we actually had this conversation yesterday in, in relation to both of those two cases that oh, I was just funny. mentioning. Yeah, it was, it was, it was funny. I was like, you know, these, these are cases, number one, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have had the experience to recognize the complexity of these cases. So some Ooh, of that awareness, I think, is actually on us that versus just sort of thinking, oh, it's a noise phobic dog. Therefore, uh huh. I think as we've learned more and as we've, we've studied more and explored more canine cognition as an example and understanding the, the depth of emotion that animals may experience and all of the different ways that we can potentially manipulate those, those behavior patterns or emotional responses, I think it's, it's lending itself to a deeper level of understanding, which inherently makes the cases more complex. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of that is on us which is amazing to really see that depth and, and the, the diversity of, of the experiences there in front of us for the animals. So that's, that's amazing. Uh, I think there's also a couple of other patterns, which is the, the, the animals themselves. I think in many ways, if you think about whether we're talking about emotional support animals or we're talking about, you know, high level agility competition dogs or you know, performance in any way, shape or form, or even just what we're asking of dogs in terms of their ability to, and, and success in navigating really complex physical and social environments. You know, I think back to, you know, growing up on the farm, so to speak, mm -hmm. and, and the dog was basically spent its day hunting, eating, sleeping. And obviously that's a very oversimplified version of that, but there was a lot of autonomy that was there. And what we're asking of dogs in, in, in cats as well is to really be a part, an integral part of complicated physical and social environments. Yep. And you know, I, I think that in, in some ways, what we are seeing in our canine and feline populations are, are really echoing some of the struggles that I think we're experiencing even as people. 
and mm-hmm. our just innate inability to navigate some of those things that the world is asking of us or that we're asking of ourselves or that we're asking of those around us. And so I think we're seeing a parallel and not just an anthropomorphic, oh, they must be stressed too, but actually seeing those difficulties (laughs) within the animal population. Um, And and then, you know, I think there's also some some additional uh, complexity to to the animals' experiences as well, in that if I go back, uh, in fact, uh, one of the cases that we saw on Monday was kind of what I would have considered more of a classic case um, or, or a, more of a simple case. It was an under-socialized dog, wasn't abused or you know, experienced uh, significant trauma, but was just naive to the world. And so there's that default fear response. Mm-hmm. And yet with pretty rudimentary interventions with sort of a whole lot of love and, and care from, from newly adoptive families has made leaps and bounds in their improvements over the last two to three months. Mm-hmm. Still has a long way to go, but has shown itself to be relatively flexible with minimal interventions. Yeah. And, and then that is a dog that I would describe as more naive versus mm-hmm. the vast majority of the patients that are coming to see me at this point have been to, in many cases, three, four, five trainers, two veterinarians, you know, grandma has, has, has weighed in on that dog's behavioral care as well. And you know, there's all of this input. And so now we've got, in some cases, a confused and overwhelmed learner who doesn't necessarily trust the learning process either mm-hmm. versus having a naive dog where you put a, a, a cookie in front of their face and they're like, huh, this, this looks amazing. Yeah. What do I need to do to earn the cookie? Let's yeah. do that. So I, I think that the, the, the emotional complexity of the learner has also shifted based on a lot of the exposures that they're getting even before I get to them or before you might get to them or yeah. before, you know, any number of people might have the opportunity to really sort of help them move forward. Yeah. That's, I, I love this idea that, you know, maybe we're looking at it through a different lens, right? It's not yes. just that the dogs are becoming more complex behaviorally, but it's maybe that is a piece of it, but it's, it's just a sliver of what's truly happening in general. Yes. Um, so yeah, I love that. Okay, so <clears throat> what does the initial process look like when you start working with a client? So there's a couple of things that happen. I mean, it always starts out um, for every single one of my clients with, um, and, I'll, and I'm going to sort of separate out the client from the patient. And I use patient because as a veterinarian, that's the terminology that I use. Mm-hmm. I know that that's more specific to the veterinary world as opposed to training and behavior consultant. Um, but when I'm thinking about that, that initial consult with the patient, it starts with the client reaching out for help. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a couple of things that, two things in particular that I always try to see to make sure that myself and my team remember is that number one, it takes a lot to reach out for help. There's a vulnerability that's already there for somebody saying, I don't know how to move this forward or we're really struggling or I'm worried about having to euthanize or rehome mm-hmm. or even just not being able to address this dog's fear or anxiety level. So there, there's a vulnerability that we try to, to, to honor mm-hmm. uh, without necessarily making a big deal out of it. We want to make sure that, 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 that our clients feel supported in that process. What we also have to remember is that it's the patient who often needs help, but they're not the ones who are seeking therapy someone is seeking therapeutic intervention for them. Mm-hmm. And so as we start to guide that process, you know, that has to be sort of in the back of my mind that, you know, we are creating reinforcement contingencies, for example, we're creating environmental modifications that hopefully allow that animal to choose more effective or productive or desirable behavior patterns. But they didn't walk in saying, hey, what I'm doing is not working for me. <laughs> I would love some new, you know, some new coping skills. We're trying to create that for them. And I, I, I don't think that we give that enough attention. Yes. And, and so that, that, you know, even before we get to logistics, that conceptual framework is there for us. Yeah. Right? So in terms of then what happens, um, we get our clients set up for an initial assessment. All of our initial assessments have to be in person. Uh, and that is a difference in, in some ways versus, let's say, trainers or behavior consultants who are doing distance or remote consults. Because I'm practicing as a veterinarian, I have to have an in-person relationship 
I could do a lot of follow-up remotely, but I have to meet with them in person in order mm -hmm. to, to really move forward. So that's, that's a restriction on, uh, on me because of my licensure. I think mm -hmm. it's a valuable restriction, but it's also a hindrance in certain ways. So we get our clients set up for an in-person uh, assessment, whether that's in the office or uh, in their home, depending on, on what, we're, what we're asking and, and what we need to see. Uh, and, then, and then we do those initial assessments. Uh, at this point, we usually do them as what we call a split diagnostic or treatment appointment uh, versus a, a three-hour marathon session where we're trying mm -hmm. to go through all of the information straight up front. I often tell my clients that when I meet with them the very first time, they will have already filled out a history form. So I'll have a basic understanding of what their concerns are, what their goals are, what they're hoping to accomplish. And then from there, my first job within that initial consult is to gather enough information that I feel like I have an understanding of what's going on. Uh, to, to the degree that I need to understand or that I'm going to be able to respond based on the information that's there in front of us. Mm -hmm. From that point, then we start to shift the conversation more from gathering information to more about sharing. And that's my opportunity to let the clients know, hey, here's what I think is going on for your dog. Here is, you know, whether we're talking reinforcers in the environment or whether we're talking about emotional states. But this is what, what, what appears to be going on. This is the pattern that makes the most sense. Plus or minus, here's some of the medical issues that we need to explore that may be underlying these behavioral patterns. So that's kind of the sharing piece. And then we shift more into the plan section, which is collaboration, to then be able to say, what makes sense for where we are right now? What makes sense as those next steps? And in some cases, the, the only next step that we take is basically to say, as long as all of this information resonates with you in a way that you know, makes you feel like we're the right people to help you move forward, then we're going to schedule a follow-up, a treatment appointment, where we're going to now dive into those additional pieces of what those interventions might look like. In other cases, we may do more of a triage plan where we may make three, you know, two to four, two to five uh, specific recommendations, which may or may not include medication based on the, on the circumstances, to be able to, to essentially say how flexible is this animal's behavior pattern? If we do two or three things, for example, really well, mm -hmm. and then we reevaluate in two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, depending on the circumstances, did that work? Better, worse, or no change? And then that gives me a better sense of, of knowing how extensive that plan likely needs to be, what degree of commitment from that owner is likely to be required, or you know, whether that animal is going to benefit from additional support, again, either through medical interventions or medication support. And so we're not necessarily trying to create a comprehensive treatment plan during an initial assessment. We're saying, what's the best we can do right here, right now? And as we talked about with some of the other cases, in some cases, that's really a matter of saying, I don't know that we can do a lot, but we can teach your animal a lot and we can bring you up to speed mm -hmm. or the day training model. Yep. Or in the other client example, you've already done a lot. So how can we layer on top of that based on that understanding and, and your uh, skill set already? How can we layer some really cool stuff? Yeah. on top of that. So we've got to be able to match those tools and those intervention options to the desires, needs, and abilities mm -hmm. of the client in front of us based on the animal that they've presented to us. Yeah. You and I were talking offline a little bit about like the fact that you have conversations around like what is your budget? You know, what is your um, time commitment? What is the urgency around the behavior modification needs in your lifestyle? Like, are you moving? Are you having a child or, you know, so on and so forth. Can you elaborate a little bit more about, about those questions? Cause you, you have a very collaborative approach with the client where you're co-designing the plan together in order to build success. I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. You're and shaping that clients. <laughs> absolutely shaping yeah. with clients. And, and it's, it's a process that, that looks a little bit different for every single one of them. And, mm -hmm. And, you know, I think earlier on in my career, I was more, I don't, I would, I would just hate to say robotic because I hope I was never that sort of rigid in my thinking mm -hmm. patterns, but I wasn't as open to adjusting those plans based on the client's needs. And I think that's something that just comes with time and experience and, mm -hmm. and, and again, openness and humility and curiosity. Yeah. But, but some of the, the, the details that you were mentioning, I think are really relevant. You know, so let's say, for example, I have an owner who comes into me with a six-year-old dog 
that's presenting with separation anxiety signs. And their history form says that this is a problem that's been present for four years. Knee-jerk reaction, <laughs> oh my God, what have you been doing for four, for four years? years? Why did yeah. you wait so long? Our job is so much harder. We now have a mature learner who's mm -hmm. been re rehearsed for this. They've been sensitized. And, ah, mm -hmm. right. So, so it, it sort of creates almost a knee-jerk frustration response. And yet, there's a different way of looking at that. So if I ask the class the, the question, rather than saying, why did you wait so long? I could ask the question, what brings you here why now? Why now? Yeah. What is it? And it may be something where, again, who, I mean, it could be anything. It could be the fact that they've known about these patterns, but their lifestyle allowed them to avoid those yep. triggers for four years, and now they have to go back to work. Mm -hmm. Or the roommate is moving out, and that was an unexpected change, and so we don't have the built-in babysitter anymore yep. for the dog. Or you know, maybe there's something else going on. Who knows what it is? But asking that question and being sort of receptive to and, and making the, helping the client, not making them do anything, but helping them to feel like that's a safe space to really acknowledge, mm -hmm. you know, and if maybe they are feeling guilty about saying, gosh, I should have been here four years ago, you know, that creates an opportunity for us to have that conversation of saying, well, we can't turn the clock back. Yeah. So what can we do to move forward today? Let's, let's let, let go of some of that, the feeling of guilt as best we can. Mm -hmm. And if anything, use that to fuel our motivation for moving forward. Mm -hmm. So, so some of what we're looking at is, is, you know, is that which helps us to understand the urgency or the needs or what the owners is most likely trying to accomplish. Uh, we may ask about their budget as well. Uh, and, you know, I find I've, I've done multiple sort of uh, ways of doing this over the years. Um, at one point I was, I was trying to see now if I asked my clients, you know, what are you prepared to, to spend? You know, for example, most of them have never really given a thought yeah. to what it might even cost. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that that's necessarily a fair question. So what I tend to to go with, and strictly on the financial piece now, is is basically saying, you know, I, when I get to that point of sharing information, and then as we're building the plan together, I may ask a question where I'm, I'm basically saying, you know, can I share with you what I believe the best recommendation would be for moving forward? I believe that the best way forward for you and your dog would be X, Y, and Z. Does that work for you? And I'm actually giving them a budget, both in terms of time and emotional investment, and, and perhaps the, the, the financial budget as well. And if, if that doesn't work for them, then hopefully they're comfortable enough sharing that information and we can say, hey, if that's not the right plan for you, then what if we make this modification or this one? And together we can come back to something that, that, that they're able to do and I feel has a reasonable opportunity to actually work. Mm -hmm. And yet there are going to be those times where the owner says, you know, I had a, I had a client who was in a couple of weeks back who is really in a, in a strapped financial position. And they said, here's what I really, really want. I want my, you know, reactive, fearful, you know, dog with a bite history to be a social butterfly. And I have $42 to invest in that. <laughs> well, I don't know that I can do that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like saying I'd, I'd love to drive a Lamborghini, but I have $42 a month for a car payment. <laughs> Those things are just not incompatible unless no. you find someone who wants to gift you a Lamborghini and all you're paying for is gas, right? Mm -hmm. so, it, it, so we have to be able to say, and then that's my opportunity to say, I, I value your expectations. I love the fact that what you're looking for is a dog who really meshes with your social lifestyle and, and all of those things. And to accomplish that, it will likely require mm -hmm. to the best of my ability X, Y, and Z. And so what we're going to have to do is either downgrade our expectations mm -hmm. or up-level our commitment in some way, shape, or form. You, you get to decide. It's not my journey. I'm not the one who's charting the course here. I'm the GPS in all of this. I'm just telling you what it's going to take to get there, how long it's going to take there, what it's likely to cost, and what you may need to invest or sacrifice in order to get there. And, and so then I, I'm able to give them that opportunity. And I, this comes back to expectation setting. I yeah. don't want that owner walking away thinking, awesome, he gave me a couple of great YouTube channels, and now I'm going to change the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It usually doesn't work that way. Sometimes yeah. we're really lucky, but it's, it's a matter of saying, okay, what is this going to look like? What are the options for moving this forward? And then, and then we see where we go. 
Yeah, I love I I love that you're that you're talking about like how to shape the conversation with with the client right up front because that really does you know, create the path that you guys go down to together. And I love the fact that you're also giving them the choice as to what part of the journey they are choosing. Um, and you're not necessarily, you know, mandating that. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I love that because then they feel a part of it and there's some more buy-in. But I also love that because it, it, it ties into this podcast that I listened to with Ryan Cartledge and Kathy Sedeo when Kathy Sedeo was talking about how we have, I think she called it like decision or no, no outcome fatigue. Outcome so, fatigue, exactly right. Yeah. Um, you know, we were talking about like there's compassion fatigue and decision fatigue and sheltering, but you know, outcome fatigue, I totally struggle with that. And I resonated so much with her podcast. I was on a plane heading home, listening to it, like, oh my gosh, I need to email her the second I land, which I did. <laughs> and I said, Thank you so much for 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 your honesty and for sharing those moments where where we get so attached to what we want for that, for that client and for that dog. And it's, it's, and I think for me too, I think I get attached to it. I think my ego gets attached to it as well. Like if I'm going to be completely honest yes. that, Oh, if, if, if it doesn't look a certain way that I'm not a good trainer, um, yes. you know, and I, I, I didn't do right by this animal or this person. If, if the outcome doesn't, the outcome doesn't look like A, B and C. Um, yes there's many times where I have to sort of rein myself back in and go, wait, like this is, you don't have control over this, Marissa. Like I, I know you want to, however, you don't have control over this. This is not realistic. And so that has been really helpful for me. Once I heard that podcast a few weeks ago to really just check back in with that and make sure that I'm not trying to micromanage the entire process because nobody wants to learn like that. And I'm sure some of my clients potentially feel that, uh, when I'm following up with them and asking questions. And so, um, that has been not only a good self-care practice for me to check in with that, but then also just ease up on it and allow the process to be the client and the dogs as well. Not just mine. I don't need to spearhead this and fix everything for, for everyone. Yes. Um, and there, yeah. And there's so many elements within that. Um, you know, I, I think that many when I I, so I do a lot of lecturing, uh, mm-hmm. both in, within the country and, and starting to a bit more internationally as well. And you know, and one of the themes that I find when I'm talking with trainers and behavior consultants is we're so invested in those outcomes, mm-hmm. and we're measuring our sense of self worth by yep. the outcome versus the investment. And I, and I don't want to imply that the outcomes are not important. You know, especially yeah. if there's a measure of success, it is important. Mm-hmm. And yet, that's one of the pieces that's hardest to control. You know, Mm -hmm. we can control the sort of in-the-moment decisions that we make and the actions that we take, but the outcomes are not always as controllable as we'd like them to be. And so I find that when we're able to create a little bit of emotional distance, not walling ourselves off from that, Mm -hmm. but allowing, as you said, that that process to unfold and not trying to script and micromanage, um, that it it works so much more effectively. Yeah. I also find that in many cases, I think that trainers, behavior consultants, and many members of the veterinary teams are basically taking it upon ourselves to be the motivator, to be the cheerleader, Mm -hmm. to be the source of inspiration, gas, energy, however you want to describe it. We're taking that upon ourselves saying, oh, well, the client wants this outcome. So it's my job to, to motivate them, to provide the inspiration, to do all of those things. And for most of us, with most of our clients, that is not sustainable. Yeah. The moment we're putting more out than what we're getting back, we immediately start that depletion process. Mm -hmm. And we start to then get frustrated because the outcomes that we needed in order to justify the work that we put into it are not happening. And that was on us for having set those expectations. So it's a matter, you know, in my experience, in my opinion, you know, it is a matter of figuring out what is that level of self-care that each of us need to bring to that conversation with our clients. And, you know, for me, that really boiled down into, you know, a, a relatively simple statement that I'm not going to do more, work harder, or care more than my clients do. Yes, and, and I saw that posted, reposted on Facebook, and you quoted, and I was like, oh my gosh. 
<laughs> that is the mantra. <laughs> it, it, for me, it is. It's one of two mantras that when I'm working with clients is probably the saving grace for me yeah. in terms of really maintaining my identity and really understanding here's what I can do to help. Mm-hmm. But it's not my journey to control. It's not my energy to provide. That's not, that's not what I'm here to do. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I recognize that, that I can bring that into the conversation, never in a way where I'm sort of sitting back telling the client, well, totally. you, know, you do you, because I'm just here to give you some <laughs> advice. Like, no, no, it's not that at all. Yeah. Yeah, and, I, and I tell those clients, you know, especially if we're struggling, it's like, here, here's what I need from you in order for this to work. And, and then, we, you know, if you're giving that energy, if you're putting the time in, oh my gosh, you get every bit of me. Yeah. every bit of me and I will give you everything that I've got but I won't work harder care more or do more than you will yes I love that so much I saw that and was like yes that is it. <laughs> it you know it's it's like I think I maybe you had I mean a lot of people use this analogy but I think you you have as well you know putting on your oxygen mask in the plane before you help others right I mean it, I mean it's like you said it's not that you're going to kick your feet up and like give them a bunch of YouTube videos and be like, Oh, I tried. You didn't do your work. Right. I mean, it is a collaborative effort as you have been talking about this entire episode, but it is also the balance caring for the animal and the client, but also caring for, for ourselves. Yes. I think it's really important. It is. And and for me, you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. I'm not here to help three clients tomorrow and then take a break. You know, I, I am, I am some, in some ways with everything that we're doing and everything that I've learned over the gosh, 15 years now that I've been, that I've been working strictly in the behavior field as a veterinarian, I, in some ways, I feel like I've just come off the start blocks. Yeah. Like, I feel like I'm just finding my stride and there's an entire marathon course stretched out in front of me. And I don't look at that in a negative way. I'm, I'm a marathoner as well. Um, or I have been, I'm not currently, but I have been. And so that, that idea of like, you know, you come off the Starbucks and you got all this yeah. energy and they're fired up and then you settle in mile two or so, and you're kind of finding your groove, you're finding your stride and you recognize that there's an entire 24 miles still out in front of you. Yeah. And you're going to ha- you're, you're, you're going to get the opportunity to work through some stuff yeah. over the course of those three or four hours, depending on your course time. And, you know, and that's the way I look at my career at this point is like, I don't know that I'm ever going to hit that finish line, at least mm-hmm. until I die. We're all going to die at some point. Right. Mm-hmm. But hopefully that's a very, very long time away from now. And I don't look at this in terms of a, uh, just a, oh, I'm going to put in my time until I retire. This yeah. for me is a golden opportunity every single day. And as long as I continue to look at it that way, what I have to be able to do every day is maintain something that is sustainable. Yeah. You know, I, I can't sprint a marathon. I can't. And so I have to be able to say, you know, that, that there's, there's, a, there's a level of, of, of regulation that I have to be able to give. I have to take some time away. I have to take those, those moments which I'm not very good at, by the way, yeah, of, of really exactly. taking downtime and recharging. I'm like, and then what? And then what? And then <laughs> totally, what? Totally, totally. Uh, but we have to, right, to some degree, and whatever recharges us, uh, we yeah. have to be able to do that in order to sustain the work that we do. Yeah, and I don't know if you're familiar with Bob Rohde. He was the president of Dumb Friends League, where, where I work for the last, I think he was president, I think it was 43 years. So 43 wow. years as the president of Dumb Friends League, large shelter nationwide. And, um, he always said that it's not, it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint, like all the time, whenever we were talking about something where there was urgency or we were on fire. And I mean, everything in sheltering could be considered a fire on some level. I mean, there's like, there's more need than resource, right? You know, no matter what size organization you are. Um, and so I, I, I had a moment, like I heard him when you, when you said that, because it's such a great analogy and it's just something super simple that when I do feel like I have, you know, what you said, what's next, let's go, you know, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm on fire like that. I, I, it is just an easy thing to, to, to remind myself that it's, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So. Absolutely. And sometimes those cliches, feel a little cliche, mm-hmm. right? We're like, yeah, I get it. It's a marathon, yeah, not a sprint, yeah. blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Throw up another Facebook meme for me. Go yeah. for it. You know, and, and yet if you, if, not to, to say that anybody needs to think in, in these ways all the time, but 
when you get that perspective to really feel those moments and to experience those where you really were able to see them in a lot of sprint, which is not to say that the sprint never exists, right? Uh-huh. Sometimes there's going to be those times where you're like, hey, I really need to push through. There is, in fact, a fire I need to put out here, and yeah. I need to push harder than I normally would in order to address this urgent need, and then I'm going to have to compensate in some yeah. sort of a way. Then I'm going to need an Epsom salt bath. <laughs> and I'm going to need to soak it out, right? Exactly right. And then you've got to be able to find that in whatever way works for you, for you. Yep. in order to, to be sustainable. Because so many of these collaborations, and you know, we talk about so many of these things with clients and with, with other team members, and you know, whether they're on our individual team or whether there are other professionals across the, 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 the city, the state, the country, whatever, all of these collaborations, they do take energy. Mm-hmm. Right? There's the, you, we were maintaining relationships and, and we're working on all of those different levels all the time. And, and we have to be able to find that restorative practice as well. Yeah. And maybe that's, you know, hiking for some people, maybe it's time with friends, maybe it's meditation, maybe it's, I don't know, running a marathon, who knows, it's going to be yeah. something different for every person, <laughs> but you figure it out along the way. If we're truly going to be able to remain sustainable. Yep. Yeah. Agreed. So switching gears a little bit, and this is, this will be our last question. So when do you include the uh, client and animals existing veterinarian in the process and how, what, what, what does that look like? Yeah, it's going to vary a little bit. Um, you know, and I would say to, to, to differing degrees, you know, I, I would sort of broaden that question and say, when, when do we pull in other team members, mm-hmm. which might be the primary clinic, you know, veterinary team. In other cases, it might be a trainer that they're already working with, or, you know, if, if it's a client who's coming to see me, in fact, one of the clients that I was mentioning yesterday, uh, so I'm in Portland, they drove down from British Columbia uh, in order to, to get their appointment um, with me. So they drove through an entire state in order mm-hmm. to get there. So people say, oh, you know, they're an hour away. I don't know if I can make that. Um, you know, not to say that anybody has to drive that, that degree, but, but there, there, there's somebody around you. Anyways, I digress. How do we pull those different team members into the process? Mm-hmm. For me, it's as soon as we recognize that there is a need that is better served by someone else than me. Mm-hmm. So in this case, if, if I have an animal who comes in to see me and I'm recognizing some gait or movement abnormalities, for example, I think, man, I really want someone who has a, just a knack for, uh, for orthopedics or for musculoskeletal issues or someone who's really good at reading x-rays or you know, some of these different places, some of these different skills, then it's in the client's best interest for me to offer them that resource right up front and say, hey, mm-hmm. here's what I recognized and the best place for us to be able to really evaluate whether or not this is an issue is to work collaboratively with your veterinarian or this specialist, for example, if that's the direction we're going. In other cases, we're, we're thinking more about the, um, let's see, more the training or behavior modification support. And especially if this is a client who's outside the region uh, you know, I need to let them know right up front that this is a process that for them as well as for their animal, it takes time and it takes coaching and we're going to see the best results if we can match them up with someone who can be sort of the direct hands-on liaison for implementation support. So what would that look like? Mm-hmm. And so we're able to have those conversations both from a, from a time commitment, from a goals standpoint, as well as from a financial investment to understand what exactly fits the needs of the, of the client and the patient the best. Mm-hmm. And, and we pull those conversations in. Uh, what I think is also a, a part sometimes that gets missed, uh, even for me sometimes, is then closing the loop on that. So let's say if I'm recommending that a client go see a specialist or their primary care veterinarian or work with a trainer or behavior consultant, if I just make that recommendation to the client and I'm not looping that other individual into the conversation, I'm probably not doing that animal the greatest mm-hmm. level of service because something is going to get lost in translation. Yep. It just is. And even if it's a yep. really knowledgeable, knowledgeable, skillful owner, there's going to be something that gets missed that if we're talking professional to professional, we can, we can really dive into the heart of what needs to be addressed more more easily. And so finding those ways and ideally uh, creating those collaborative relationships before you need them Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, that we're then able to say, that. yeah, I mean, if you don't have it and you got to search for it, that's fine. But it's so much easier if you can say, hey, for Julie, sure. I'm sending a case your way. Mm-hmm. Here's the detail. It's boom, 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 boom. Here's what I think they need. But if you notice something different, 
let me know and I can, I'm happy to adjust the plan from my perspective as well. Yeah. And then we're off and running, right? Versus, versus then sort of thinking, gosh, where do we go next? Or leaving it up to the client to be the, 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 the relayer of information. Yeah. And I love this idea of creating that, creating your, um, your referral system, your, um, team, if you will, and learning from them. So, um, I've had experiences where clients will tell me something like, Oh yeah, that trainer told me this. And I'm like, really, that's, that's kind of interesting. And I could either just assume that that's what the client said, or I could use it as an opportunity to say, Hey trainer, um, I heard this. Is that what you meant? Um, potentially it landed differently with the client or lost in translation, like you said to me. Um, and it's an opportunity for us to chat about that and maybe how we could present information differently and sort of learn from one another. So I, and, and that can be really vulnerable for a lot of trainers. Right. And, um, I, I, I really like feedback because it's the only way I find that we're out there on our own, sometimes on an Island. And so I, yeah. I really love the, I've told many trainers, like, please, if you hear something about me from a client, I need, I need to know, or else I'm not going to grow as a trainer. It yes. may sting my ego for a moment, but I, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's part of growth. Right. And so um, I, I, I encourage all of us trainers to do that in a respectful, kind way. And, and to start by possibly, you know, looking for a, a trainer or, or professional that you trust and, and you can receive the information from them so that you, that you use it as a learning opportunity instead of getting defensive or worried about your skills. Right. Yes. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I just want to put a plug in there for that because I think, I think it's a great opportunity for us to collaborate, but also learn and grow together. Yes. And there's so many things. I mean, we could, we could literally talk for another hour about ways to sort of successfully create those relationships and, and ways for, you know, within ourselves to navigate some of that defensiveness that comes so uh -huh. easily to, to most of us, especially if we did something, you know, kind of pulling this back to some of the previous concepts, if we made recommendations to a client because we were attaching our emotional yeah. expectations on outcomes and now a colleague or a professional is challenging our emotionally held beliefs because of something that the client relayed when, in, you know, that can be really, really traumatic to hear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yet the reality, if we, if we sort of make a different story uh -huh. and we, <laughs> we reframe that differently yep. is to be able to say, you know what? Maybe they know something different than I do. Mm -hmm. They've got a different skill set. So what can I learn from this? Yeah. And I think if we're going into a conversation with that sort of feedback for someone, I think there are ways, I, I know there are ways to make that less challenging mm -hmm. and, and to, to, to find ways to nuance that conversation that in, in some ways actually asks the client before we just jump in and say, hey, a client told me this. We send them that random Facebook message. Hey, a client told me this. Yeah. Um, what are you thinking? Versus... <laughs> <laughs> I'm working with a client. They shared some information. What would be the best way for me to get that to you? Cause I'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's, it's, it's a matter of words, right? But the impact is so different. Yeah. So different. We need a Dr. Pockel app where it's like, <laughs> I want to say this. Can you reframe it? <laughs> then you just press play. <laughs> say this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm serious. Uh, this is going to be a gold mine. <laughs> it's so much fun to be able to think about those things because the words matter. Yeah, totally. They, they really do in the way that they connect with us and the way that we're able to communicate our intentions and, and, and to really share information in meaningful ways. And whether that's with the client, um, whether it's with the animal, even in yeah, some yeah, cases, yeah. Or, or our colleagues and professionals and, mm -hmm. and you know, learning from one another, the, the, the relationships and the conversations and the trust within yeah. that really, really do make a difference. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's a perfect place to wrap up. So where can people find you online? Uh, a couple of different places. Number one, we've got a lot of the information about the practice and the work that we do uh, at our, our primary website, which is animalbehaviorclinic.net. Uh, people can also find me on, on Facebook or Instagram. I'll be very honest. I haven't really done much of a separation between my professional and personal life because 
guess what? If you're one of my contacts or my colleagues, this is who I am. I just put it all out there. <laughs> uh, and so, you know what? You, you, you get what you get. So you're more than welcome to find me, connect with me on, on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, I'm also working on a website. It's not ready yet. Uh, it should be shortly. Uh, and that will be literally drpockle.com. And that's going to have my speaking schedule like this that I've been interviewed for and helpful resources that I think people who are looking for me might benefit from learning about as well. So watch for that to come in the future. Again, that'll just be drpockle.com and, and uh, we'll be able to get all the information for you there. Awesome. So thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a fabulous conversation. It has been a, just a ton of fun for me as well. Thank you. Yeah, so great. So I am Marissa Martino, owner of Pause and Reward Dog Training in Boulder, Colorado. And you can find me online at pauseandreward.com. So before we go, be sure to subscribe to Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcasts. You can find episode notes and bonus materials at canineconvos.com. And we'd love to hear from you. So please contact us at hello at canineconvos.com. Our theme music is called Funny Song and it's provided royalty free from bensound.com. Our audio is mixed and edited by James Eady at beher.org.uk. And lastly, our logo is from Walker Hooper. You can find his work on Instagram at walkers underscore username. Thanks so much, guys. 